With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the Armchair Cricket Podcast. Hello all. Welcome to another episode of Armchair Cricket Podcast, a podcast focusing on test cricket by Armchair Critics of the Game. I'm your host, Ajit. In today's podcast, we have a really special guest, somebody who combines his love of cricket with an academic career in mathematics. Uh, we have Nitish from the Broken Cricket Dreams podcast. Hello, Nitish. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Ajit. Thank you for the invite. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I think... Uh, we can begin right at the question which I ask every one of my guests. What brought you to cricket? What has kept you in cricket? Gotcha. So I would say two things here. Um, so one, watching cricket and two, playing cricket. Um, so when I was, so my first memory of watching cricket was somewhere probably between 2002 and 2004. Uh, people tell me that I watched the entire 2003 World Cup and you know, memorized like every player from Zimbabwe to Australia. Um, but my first actual memory that I remember from cricket was the 2004 uh, India-Pakistan series, um, where uh, the ODI series specifically, because in that series, major players from both the teams had some of the great knocks. Inzamang Lahad played well, Rahul Ravid was bowled on 99 by Shoaib Akhtar, uh, Mohammed Kef uh, took the catch of Shoaib Malik um, uh, in the 349 chase. So it was just a great series overall, and that's how I just fell in love with the game and have been following it ever since. And in terms of playing the game, then I joined my school cricket team in about when I was in second grade. Um, so between 2005 and 2007, uh, played for two or three years for my school. Um, it was a new school, and we were building a team. Uh, and just a quick story about Broken Cricket Dreams itself, why the name came, uh, was uh, 
so uh, I love batting, but uh, I realized looking back that I was a small uh, nine or ten year old kid uh, who had two shots in the game: the front foot defense and straight drive. Um, so uh, we had one uh, inter school game, just uh, or inter school game, just between us, and uh, I came to bat at number three. Um, and we were chasing, and I stayed there till the end at number nine, and uh, we won the game. And I was like, okay, I like this cricket thing. Now the thing was, I did not hit any shots. I just played defensive strokes and just survived for the entire game. And next thing, what happened was the season ended. Next year we had uh, one game um, in the, I think the Shivaji Park. Uh, it was a knockout game that I did not play. Uh, we were. I was supposed to play the second game had we won the first one. We did not win the first one. Um, then we moved to the United States, and I have never played cricket ever since. So that was my broken cricket dream. That's a bit uh, unfortunate to hear. But uh, now with so much cricket being uh, taken up by even as far as a minor cricket league happening, do you fancy any chances at all? <laughs> um, so... I haven't thought about that too deeply. Um, I, there is a lot of cricket, especially in the East Coast and the West Coast, in North Carolina, uh, Florida, New Jersey, and in California areas. Um, I think the minor league uh, is uh, a work in progress and it's growing. Um, I, I know lots of universities in the United States do play cricket. Um, and uh, so. I don't think I'm going to go back into playing, but if I ever get a chance, if I move to a city where the sport is nearby, um, I definitely want to join some clubs, and if something happens out of it, that would be fun. But not not at the moment. Look, don't give it up yet. So it oh, yeah. could be, uh, well, you called your site broken cricket dreams. That can stay. But I was yeah. going to say, call, call it a paused cricket dream. Because if you were to take my example, right, I played some organized cricket in school. Right. And then once I went into university or even pre-university, I didn't play any cricket for, I don't know, the next uh, 10 years or so. Right. And then I came to the Netherlands and I met somebody who was playing for a club and I joined their club. And the rest, wow. as they say, is history. Well, I know I did not uh, make any big achievements that I can really talk about, but I play the game for myself and I'm very happy to play it. Oh yeah, the fact that you're still playing and that, that's 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 wonderful. And then that, that's one of the reasons for the platform is I know there are millions of fans on the in the world that, you know, want to play at some level, right? And so that's the goal. I mean yeah. I'm only going to tell you uh, call it a pause cricket dream in your own mind. Don't be a broken yeah. one. Right, right. All right. So that was an interesting introduction. You actually at least uh, anticipated and answered one of my questions. So the next thing is your interest in mathematics. Uh So I understand you are pursuing a PhD in mathematics, right? Yes. So how do you manage to find some time? I know PhD can be pretty grueling. How do you find time for following cricket or keeping tabs on cricket? That's an interesting question. Uh, So uh, I would say managing is a bit difficult, but uh, I mean, the entire blog and everything started during the pandemic, right? And we were um, confined to our rooms and our home. Um, And that's when like, when cricket was not happening, 
and uh, that's when we were like we I realized that I missed the sport so much uh, and then watching the sport has never been a problem uh, even, I mean uh, especially with cricket being played around the world ever since the beginning I you know sleep at odd hours you know if, if, uh, in the 2015 World Cup I had to get up 4 a.m. before school started to watch a couple of games uh, and then 8 o'clock, get ready, go to school. Um, but in the PhD, uh, I usually try my, you know, most of the mornings, 8 to 5, most of the weekdays to focus on school. Um, and if there's games going on, you know, just during lunch, watch some clips or if there's free time, but um, maybe in the evenings or the weekends, that's when I devote my time into the writing per se, but watching, watching and following has never been a problem. I can find cricket anywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we go on to your blog, I just wanted to ask you a more utilitarian question. So if you are to be somebody living in the US, yeah. where would you get to watch cricket legally? So we you know there are some, uh, let's say, less than, uh, uh, less than ideal platforms where you could watch it if as long as you have the internet and maybe a hidden browser. But where could well, you get to watch cricket legally? Willowcrest? Willow TV has the rights to most games um, and broadcasted in America, so I have a subscription to that. Um, and Willow TV is broadcasted on Sling and other places. So, um, yeah, there used to be a time probably like before 2008 that, uh, you know, watching. So I, I did not get to watch the first couple of IPLs or the 2007 T20 World Cup. But then they started to get rights for a series or two starting 2011. Uh, and now they have basically a subscription to everything. And then ESPN Plus also have like a lot of West Indies, New Zealand games are now on different platforms. I think Amazon Prime is coming through. Um, so yeah, I think now legally it's everywhere. So Willow TV though is the main broadcaster. That's great to hear. So at least if there is a legal way of watching you you could at least follow the game without too much guilt right yeah all right and uh, so before we actually again go into the games can you give me an idea of how the things stand with the us cricket board because until recently i think there was a bit of flux there were mm -hmm. multiple bodies claiming to be the real thing and uh, the players themselves did not have any you know, um, security because the board itself was not, they lost accreditation from ICC at some point in time, I remember, and then some things happened. So could you lead, lead us through, if you yourself have been following, some of the history or some some of the context for the US cricket bo bo board and then maybe a bit mm -hmm. more on where they are now? Right. So I, I th uh, I've been loosely following it for a few years. Um, so yeah, as you said, in the early 2000s and mid 2000s, they had lots of governance issues. Um, they have started. They, they tried to start their league at least three or four times, uh, which did not happen. I think 2004 was their first attempt, um, and then the, the All Star League with like Shane Warne and Tendulkar tried to go, but you know that didn't really do much to the game here. But the Major League Cricket. Uh, and then how that came into being. Um, so first the administration got their act together for uh, a while. Um, and then uh, they voted for the minor league cricket and the major league cricket. Now major league cricket I think has hope because it has funding from lots of uh, 
you know, see um, well-known CEOs and people around the states. Um, but in terms of administration, I think like for two or three years, everything looked that it was going pretty well. But I think another voting election issue happened earlier this year, which I'm not 100% clear about what went down there. But I think the administration is not still completely in order. But in terms of where the sport is, it's definitely on the rise, especially um, I know under-19 women's uh, USA uh, has been doing well, has been progressing. Uh, in terms of minor league and major league, uh, they are, you know, the big name recruits uh, from other countries, Dane Pete, um, Liam Plunkett, uh, Unmuk Chan, uh, they have been recruited, uh, which I don't know if that's the best way of going, but that is certainly a way. Uh, and and the minor league cricket has been sustaining itself for a couple of years, and that has not fallen apart. Um, so I, I'm hoping by the time it gets to 20, the mid 2023, when major league is going to start, that that's going to work well, or at least I think it will take a couple of seasons to really fly off, but it's going to survive. The board will still have its issues um, uh, with all the elections and stuff, but. Um, I, th I think it's on the right path. Saying that, uh, just living here, it's not a sport that's culturally in the veins of Americans yet, right? Um, you don't even, like I don't, majority of people will not know that Major League Cricket is a thing that's coming in 2023. Um, yeah. So it's, it's just a niche sport, niche market at this point. Well, I mean, look, it might very well be a niche sport. Yeah. But um, let's let's cast our eyes a little bit into the future. This is going to be a speculative sort of a question, but yeah. US has a very la large, um, you know, sports fan base and yeah. a long history of organizing and you know, conducting big tournaments. They have hundred plus years of uh, you know successfully running tournaments in baseball, in basketball, and so on. So, right. If the U.S. public were to take cricket seriously. Yes. So the question is, will will it be accepted as is? What sort of a expectation can, you know, if I were to be a sports fan tomorrow, would I think there may be a team of United States ready to compete really hard at the top level in 20 years time? Because the sporting complex that United States has, because they produce a bunch of, uh, you know, Olympics medal winning sports persons. They have successful sports persons in every, most big sports, I wouldn't say every. And also at the end, also when it comes to organizing and running successful sport leagues and sport tournaments, they're very good. We know this, right? So as this is a backdrop, do you think this sport, let's say at least in the shortest format might take root? Right. So, so here's, uh, so I did a piece on this and here are my, I have two or three predictions how this can go. Right. Um, so there's two models that cricket could follow. Um, there's, uh, the MLS model, the major league model, and that's what I think is going to happen. And then the other one, which I wish were to happen was the Afghanistan model. Now let me explain this for a second. So MLS. Uh, Major League Soccer, um, now we know that, you know, USA usually qualifies for the World Cup, goes into the quarterfinals, uh, or around the 16, so, so, and then there's a Major League, there's some following, and the women's soccer is really top-notch here, 
But if you really look at the history of Major League Soccer here, the first league that they tried to put mainstream here, uh, I think that was the North American Soccer League, was first started in 1968. Then it took the USA team 22 years to qualify for the World Cup in 1990. They hosted the World Cup in 1994, and the Major League Soccer that we know as of today uh, happened in 1996. Um, women's soccer started probably mid-1980s, and by 20 years it was in the public eye. Now, so if cricket follows something like this, right? So suppose the Major League Cricket is their NASL from 1968, um, right? So it might take 20 years for it to have any re relevance. Um, I think the women's team will definitely gain faster ground, um, and probably by 2030 it could qualify in world tournaments, um, and I think they still do. Uh, but the men's team, especially, uh, I think it might take, if cricket goes how it's going, by 2040, 2035 and stuff like that, uh, which is a long-term goal, right? Uh, I think they're trying to push the LA Olympics in 2028. Now, if that happens and that is really popular, that can uh, fasten things up. Uh, but if we were to if we were to predict when a USA team might be even like a UAE in the 2022 T20 World even that level, yes, uh, it might yeah, so not qualify within 10 years. But then to be a consistent team in the world of cricket, it might take 20 to 30 years. I would say. Right. Interesting, but. 20 to 30 years is not much from uh, the sort of beginnings they've had. The minor league is only running for a couple of years now. So right. I would say real organized cricket only started in the US a couple of years ago. Right. Before that, it was mostly just um, people who are enthusiasts. Mostly, as you say, on the East Coast, I've heard a lot of good things about cricket. Right. Right. So, yeah. So the question really is, um, yeah, I would rather see the Afghanistan model, right? So I, I did read a little bit of your article, hence the origin of my question as well, because I know you've looked into it. Yeah. So if I were to go and talk about your website, so it's a fantastic website, lot of useful cricketing news, lovely blog articles. I think you recently published a 200th article, right? Uh, yes, I'm done 257 now, yeah, 200 articles. Fantastic. So, I mean, look, if you really started it in, during the pandemic in a matter of two, two and a half years, you've written 257 articles. I mean, that's quite something. Just to give you a comparison, right? My podcast is now, yeah, started at the beginning of 2019. So let's say it's comparable and I've only gotten to 165 episodes. So you've done very, very well. I would say, you know, keep this going because you have a deeply analytical mind. You're doing a PhD in mathematics. So who knows, you may come up with good models that someday uh, even people who are in the decision-making positions may actually use because, well, if anything, I expect with cricket coming to America and America really adapting to the game, yeah. the game itself will be challenged to adapt itself yeah. to this very demanding demanding setup because uh, I always think, you know, uh, there is a certain amount of coziness that cricket has gotten used to because it's a air quotes gentleman's game where as you always say, not always the rules of the game 
are similar to the uh, spirit of the game right they are two separate things and so on so the moment it hits the american um, market and it's taken seriously in america right. i'm expecting the game itself will have a tough time will have to account for itself and actually evolve so from that perspective do you see any any clashes between the let's say the old world thought which likes test cricket mm. and the new world which you know I, i dare say america will start from the new world end but yeah. if america were to be considered the new world even for cricket and then there is an old world establishment that sits in england do you see a clash between these two in the upcoming years it's an interesting point uh so i don't i don't know about a clash i always hope all of these uh, um conflicts might be might have a peaceful coexistent at the end of the day um but yeah so if america's leagues were to take off it was it would definitely be in the shorter format in t20s now if they now this is all hypothetical if they put a lot of money in and uh, you can already see with the uh the world is probably uh, the cricket world is probably at uh an interesting position at this place with you know Trent Bolt not accepting a central contract calling the grand home uh, retiring uh, and and they're pursuing more freelance career options rather than a central contract and if the US happens to be a big uh, market um then that that might actually be an issue especially for players who are not in the reckoning in the first 11 right you see the big 3 countries have enough players in their pipeline that they can make a t20 odi test team separately and some of the and their players even underneath that level that do not make it to their first 11 in any format but they are really good and can represent other countries um so they might just say all right i might just do a freelance career uh and i mean if us wants to take uh, a lot of those players they can but even if you just see the south africa league that's coming up um in the option they paid a lot more money than the big bash and the uae international league has also been paying a lot of money so if all of these leagues are self sustainable then there's definitely I guess uh, to answer the question, to, uh, there will definitely be some push and pull between the establishment uh, and, and the casualties will be the players that are really, really good but do not make it to their team consistent to the national team consistently. Look, US is a very good uh, option for those what you already named to be the good players who might miss out on one or the other right. eleven. Yeah. So there comes the question really. So with the new world uh, order that the US might adapt. Mm-hmm. So you might see more and more a mercenary sort of a interaction with cricketers and mercenary sort of an attitude in cricketers but nobody can blame a sports person. Everybody knows a sports person. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know career is limited. Right. But then for me what is really what is really important is to see if you know the old world that sits in marlebone can actually <laughs> also see that they need to allow the new world <laughs> to have its own say and sort of at least take up the way certain things in cricket can still be done so previously there have been instances where for example there were eight ball overs in australia <laughs> and 
in england they always played six ball overs right so that didn't really affect the rules uh, that that didn't really affect the results or nobody really challenged them to say no you should play six balls or otherwise don't call yourself cricket or whatever right so this way if certain things can be accommodated i dare say cricket itself will be the winner mm-hmm. where um, you know little bit of flexibility also might be required from boards because you gave me two examples uh, bolt and um, colin de grandhomme because look uh, this brings us to another point we saw that um, you know there are more and more indian businessmen or uh, people uh, who are invested in cricket in india also taking up stakes in other teams abroad for example right. the same set of teams that own uh, many of the ipl teams also have teams in south african cricket league in uae cricket league right. and caribbean premier league right so if i were to be a cricketer who's 30 plus right i know my number of playing years are limited and i'm closer to the end rather than the beginning i might choose to actually uh, you know retire from my country service so that i can actually benefit from contract with one entity right. that might still allow me to play cricket across four to five different places right right this is coming so i remember not very long ago uh, you know the club cricket was so big that it sometimes overshadowed even world cups when it came to football i hope this day never comes uh-huh. but we will definitely see some flux when it comes to uh, how cricketers will sort of probably position themselves in pursuing a career this is something i truly expect that this is a change that's coming in the next 20 25 years and us who's very well known for sort of allowing players to fulfill their potential no matter right. where they get to play and how they get to play mm-hmm. might actually be the let's say the the starting place or the sort of the sort of mentality let's go through the games <laughs> that we uh, that we had planned so if you we were to start off um, i'm now looking at first let's go through the india set of odis so there were two series since our previous episode the last two odis of australia england series uh, australia india series in the first t20i last two t20is of australia india series in the first t20i between india and south africa so did you get a chance to see both these series so far i did i did yeah what are your thoughts on how india fared in that uh, india australia series uh, do you do you consider them a fair victors at the end of the series i think this india australia series did a lot of good to the indian team uh, especially the third victory because coming from the asia cup i would i think there were lots of questions on the team on the selections um and uh, and uh winning that third t20 in the fashion that they did it right chasing the big total um their bowler even the hershel patel defending uh only given away six or seven runs in the in the last over um i think a lot of things clicked in that third t20 uh, that were questions earlier especially from the batting unit um however um especially with the injury announcement today of Bumrah um uh, I, i think just like Jadeja's injury derailed the plan in the Asia Cup now India doesn't have as much time um uh, to think about how to structure their playing 11 i think their 15 would be just fine it is just finding the balance in the 11 but the australia series was actually pretty good spectacle overall and the south africa series uh was so far so good uh, i actually enjoyed the swing and 9 for 5 um in the in those testing conditions 
Um, you don't see that in T20 too often, but I think both the teams did well to come back from a slow start and a testing circumstance. Right. But look, uh, just to going going back to the point about Bumrah, he looked half the bowler he, he really is. I mean, maybe he was still struggling with some sort of an injury that sort of blew up. But in the game that we saw him play, uh, he did not look like the finished product. So, I remember uh, in the second and the third games where, you know, previously in my tweets I had said, if Harshal Patel and Bumrah would be playing, you cannot expect India would you know, really be bleeding so badly in the death overs. But that's exactly what happened in both those games. Right. Especially in the last game, I remember, I think Australia hit 7 to 8 boundaries or in, in about 10 balls in that 19th and 18th and even the beginning of 20th over period. So, only some little bit of semblance of sanity came only at the end, last 4 to 5 balls. So, was it just, was it just that he was very much still injury-plagued and not this 100%? Or is he actually beginning on a decline? Because this is something we all suspected because of the way he bowls. Yeah. There'll be a lot taken out of his body. What do you think? Yeah, it's a, I think, uh, and it's just, I mean, just being on social media all day today, there's been a lot of rumors on how things are happening. I'm not quite, there, there hasn't been clarity from the board on how uh, Bumar was treated. Like, if, as you said, he was clearly not completely fit when he came back, although we did have a couple of Yorkers to Steve Smith that was that meant that his skill was still there. Um, but the fact that he was rested in the first game and Umesh Yadav had to be brought back and then he was rested again yesterday for the South Africa game meant that he is not fully fit and that's after two or three months of being rested in the first place. So I think this is a pretty bad injury because it uh, and the fact that it's even if on the outside he might be declared fit, it might be some sort of recurring injury that could probably plague his career. Um, I hope he still, we still see a lot of him. Like Joffre Archer from 2019 to 2020, he was an absolute beast, right? The World Cup, the Ashes, um, you know, he, he was, and even for Rajasthan in the IPL. Um, but then since then, he has not been playing. He's, He's been injured more often than not. And that, hope, fingers crossed, We, I'm hoping we see Boomer back again. But, uh, and, and I, going back to your point earlier, it might be the fact that three-format cricket is no longer feasible for any cricketer, let, let alone a fast bowler. So, it, I see in the next five or three or four years, ICC making a mandatory rule that a player has to declare that he, uh, they can only play they, they have to choose two out of three formats maximum that's that's very much more farsight that you show than potentially some administrators in the highest body but also some administrators in the individual country bodies might sure. actually resist but we'll see how that comes about but coming back to the point you made it is it is indeed uh, yeah, it is indeed possible that, you know, probably India have already shown a bit of foresight in the way they're managing his workload. I think he's always a bit more um, a bit more careful. Uh, he plays more tests or more long format cricket when there is a big long format season coming up and so on and so on. So one of my recent guests pointed this out to me and then I, when I look back at it, I see he's already being sort of managed over the last 18 months. Right. But look, 
sometimes i think it's just i think we might be over reading into the situation simply because injury is just a part and parcel of a fast bowler's life right. and it might just stop there right we don't need to worry too much about it but indeed the upcoming few months might be crucial mm-hmm. as to how bumrah may shape up because there are like two world cups in a matter of like 11 to 12 month period so and and a big ipl and a big you know push because most teams would be trying to qualify for their world test championship final so mm-hmm. 2023 summer is a big time so it's going to be interesting how india will manage his workload mm-hmm. coming back to the series so look um i was particularly unhappy about the way the bowlers fared yeah. because as i said there was a lot of hemorrhage of runs towards the end mm-hmm. and it was just the batting race and finally uh, we see the kohli that we've all been missing so to say right he's always been scoring runs but to score runs in the emphatic manner he did mm-hmm. right i remember he hit a six in the last over in that chase and he got out after that but let's say the back back of that chase had more or less been broken and he even nearly finished it off this is the kohli we know right so have we now uh, seen the kohli come back now he's good enough that he has one or two more really productive years for himself and india uh, i would like to think so um, i would say i was on the before the asia cup i was on the fence that you know maybe india need to uh, you know groom a, a youngster or at least go with a you know maybe a pretty shots and new samson in the top order for the world cup however saying that um, to answer your question yes he is definitely looking like the, the rest really helped them um, and is back in the frame of mind i think the first three or two or three games in the asia cup he was still you know struggling and i think there's part of the part of the issue is how post 2021 uh, world cup how india wants to play with their batting and that's sort of contradictory to virat's uh, usual style right he likes to play a couple of deliveries and over just to get in and you saw in the England series earlier that you know he was dancing down the wicket trying to play cross line um you know a little bit uncharacteristic but the Afghanistan game I think really got him in the groove and he uh, and once he broke this shackles he he scored a century with a six and the 71st you know has not made a century for the last you know how many months or how many games that's now out of his mind and so since then he's just been playing freely and i think that's good so he will definitely keep on going i hope he odi cricket there's a little more there's not been a lot of odi cricket in the last couple of years which is his peak format so i hope he plays that for a few years even if he um stops in one or two formats the way i see it is probably t20s will be stopped before odis before tests because yeah. he's he's sort of declared very clearly that test um, is the top test is for him yeah. the top most format and he'll always respect it and even a 40 or a 50 he makes in a test match probably he holds right. uh, at par with the odi 100 and so on so okay we'll see how that really pans out now uh, if you were to talk about the other batting star in that series well the batting star of t20s all year i would say mm-hmm. surikumar yadav mm-hmm. how sweet is his timing do you think he's at this point in time potentially the best t20 batter in the world i would like to say so uh, i think among the i mean he's definitely the top 3 or 4 if not at the top i think the way he's timing the ball is probably better than anybody um yeah, there's josh butler there's the babar azam mohammad rizwan who are among the runs that david malan from england as well um but 
the way Suri is playing, and, and it's not only the way he's playing, it's in the circumstances he's coming in. Um, because at number four, he's played those innings where, you know, suppose the top three have already made runs, and he needs to come in, hit a few boundaries, and finish the game off. He has done that. He's done that in the first innings. Whenever there's a collapse, he has, you know, as the 17, from the 17 for two, he just played his natural game. I, I know there was a top edge, but, you know, once that was out of the way, he was middling every ball and recovered India from a pretty bad situation. So he's, he's finishing games, he's chasing, he's coming in at a low start, and all of those circumstances, and even in the West Indies, he opened the innings and didn't look out of sorts there. So, and in KKR, he has been, a, when he started his career in the IPL, he was a finisher. So he can play any any part of the order. He can play spin. I know the statistics against left arm spin is not that great, but you know against South Africa with Maharaj and Shamsi, it didn't seem that he was struggling. So he, yeah. So I think he's the best all round player in form right now. I mean, indeed, he's uh, really also shown it that you know he's almost fearless when it comes to taking on yes. every kind of bowling. Right. And well, it was that that partnership that really rescued India and took them home, because India were looking down the barrel when he came into bat, and those two sixers of his first four balls, one of them, albeit of a huge stoppage, it doesn't really matter where you hit the ball, right? So he got those six runs, and for me, um, you are absolutely right when you say more than Kohli, the way he batted really took the pressure off. Uh, Indian bench, I think. Otherwise, they would be very, very nervous. The other question is that of Rishabh Pant ah. or Dinesh. Think, ah. Right? Rishabh Pant didn't really get to do much in this series, in Australian series at least. And does he now merit a place in the T20 uh, 11 at all for you? Or because Karthik is sort of so well entrenched and so well trusted to finish the innings, probably Pant will not get to do much uh, even in the World Cup. Yeah, uh, so okay. So here's, here's my thought. I've thought about this a lot. And, you know, Dinesh Karthik is one of my favorite players. So, uh, But I'm going to not take bias in this. Uh, I think, especially in T20 cricket, uh, the, the number the uh, number you bat in, the role you play, is very important. And I look back at, his, at Rishabh Pant's 2018 season, where he scored like 670 runs, 150 strike rate. Um, most of his, I think there were a couple of innings where he battered down, but most of his knocks were at number three or number four, and his entry points were either the, between the fifth and the eighth over. And lots of them were wherever he scored like, you know, 129 or 60 or something, he came in at the fourth over, right? Uh, so if Rishabh Pan wanted to be in the 11, he had to bat number three or four. Number four, as we mentioned earlier, is now Suryakumariyagos, and that cannot be taken away from him. And, and the situation is, because of how Hardik Pandya played at Gujarat this year, right? we already know Hardik Pandya can bat down, right? But like, the alternative would be to put Pant at four, Suryakumar five, Hardik six. You can do that because both Surya, Suri can play anything, and Hardik can finish games off. But then you're not optimizing them as much. You are, you're trying to optimize Rishabh Pant, but I would take a I would take Surya Kumar at number four more than I would take Pant at four. 
And what's happening is at number five and number six, you always come at different situations, sometimes at the 10th over, sometimes in the 14th over, and punt needs a couple of overs to get settled. But when you're chasing, uh, as opposed to when you're setting a target, you want to have a player who can hit from ball one or assess the situation, which I don't think punt at number five is. He's not the right fit at number five. So your opinion is probably he'll be in the squad as a backup keeper, but he might not make the starting eleven uh, in the upcoming series as well as in the World Cup. Uh, in, in this series, he should definitely be there because Hardik is in the NCA, so he should still get game time. Um, I think, and and in the warm-ups as well, he should get game time. Um, and ideally, you know. Uh, so so, uh, and just going back to my earlier comment of why I didn't think. Kohli fit in the lineup, or and it's not just uh, for Kohli. It's either Rahul, Rohit, or Kohli. If you see where they bat in the IPL, they play the exact same role for the franchise, right? And a modern day T20 team needs one or maximum two of those anchor players. And if you're going to play all three of them, then you're taking someone else's spot at number three. Ideally, you would need. Ideally, two out of the three of Rohit Kohli and Rahul should play should open. Number three should be Surya. Number four, Pant. Five, Hardik. Six, DK. So I would, in my ideal eleven, have both Pant and DK. But I don't think that's going to happen for the World Cup. I think India has made a decision, and the way all three in the top are batting, I don't think with as close to the World Cup as we are, uh, India should not change their top seven at this point. There is also the question of somebody like Huda, right, who can offer you a few overs with the ball as well as, you know, be a hard-hitting top-order batsman. Right. There is a bit of flexibility there, but I understand uh, it might not be now the time uh, to, you know, start uh, making some experimentation there for the Indian top-order. But, well, they also got some results, but they still have a little bit of cleaning house yeah. that remains when it comes to their uh, indoors bowling Right, and sometimes, for example, in as we saw in that second, uh, uh, sorry, the first T20A between India and South Africa, Rahul can get a bit stuck. Mm-hmm. So Kohli tried to take on uh, Norke in his very first over, got dismissed. Mm-hmm. And see, when you come up against really top quality bowling, mm-hmm. right? It India were not exactly nine for five, but I thought the maturity they displayed was sort of commendable right you know the target you're chasing there's not a lot yeah. you need to do at the top it's okay you don't need to be 55 no losses in the sixth over right and so on so uh, rohit i find sometimes is a bit hot and cold these days so it remains to be seen how rohit will rescue his form heading into the world cup but if i park that for a second the question is really still um you know uh, if India have the adaptability as they showed. Some days the Indian fast bowling can be so good at the top. We saw it in that uh, that inconsequential game against Afghanistan yeah. where Bhuvi blew them away and then now with Arshdeep and uh, Chahar yeah. really doing a good job. So the question is how often will India have to dig deep and how often can they be more consistent like they did in the South Africa game? Right. Yeah, and I think yeah, the last few World Cups, that's what it has boiled down to, hasn't it? Uh, except for 2021, most of the times in the crunch situations, India has not stood up uh, for, for a variety of reasons, not any specific reasons. Uh, but I think 
in terms of the bowling, that's definitely a concern. So, because I initially thought that India has been struggling batting first, but now with all the other T20I series happening, every team is having trouble setting a target. And every team has uh, issues bowling at the death. So, India has India can chase well, we saw, already saw. And it's how, in, while batting first, what's the tone that they set? And as you said, Rohit and Rahul's form is going to determine how India plays in this World Cup. At least one of the top three has to stand up every game. Uh, if not, and in the bowling, you need wickets in the power play. Those are issues. That much is absolutely clear. And bowling, look, it will also depend on uh, where sort of, you know, where in Australia and what sort of pitches right. the World Cup will get because it looks like a lot of Australia has also been affected with the rains and probably the pitch preparation is not exactly up to where you would expect it to be, oh. right? And this is pretty early in the year. So, their peak summer, sort of the best cricketing facilities are saved for, let's say, November, December and this is sort of played in October. Mm. So, it remains to be seen as to what sort of pitches we may get. Right. So, there was one thought process that said the World Cup might be played at least at the beginning parts in places or in pitches, which which might be like how the uh, you know the Chapel Hadley Trophy uh, happened, where you will not get a whole lot of uh, good pitches like concrete pitches, which will uh, be supportive of uh, hitting from ball one, but you'll have to you maybe a 140-150 sort of a pitch, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get to see in Dubai, so that's the sort of question. But in any case, I think with the swing in the air and the seam and the cut that they produced of the pitch, the Indian bowlers, mm-hmm. that will be very crucial. So power play wickets, uh, I mean the importance of that cannot be stressed enough because if you now look at the other series that is going on, the one where Pakistan and England have been fighting, a, you know, it's like a boxing bout really. So many games, so 14 uh, innings. It's very interesting to see that, you know, one team is completely switched on one day and the, on the same day, the other team is completely switched off. At least this carried on for about four matches until um, somehow Pakistan won two games. They had no business winning. So, if you were to just take a quick look across this series, England was so ruthless even up to the thirty twenty eight, right? Where they made 221 with, you know, Ben Duckett and Harry Brook looking like the best two batters, like Surya Kumar on both sides, right? right? And then from that, they, they couldn't win the next two games where, you know, they would look comfortable chasing 166 and suddenly they were all out for 163. And then in the last game, so where they couldn't finish off 145 chase. What are your thoughts on how these two teams are shaping up? Uh, it's been a very exciting series. So I, I was thinking that, you know, seven match T20I series, it's going to be boring, it's going to be long. Uh, but it's been, it's been very exciting. Uh, I think, um, you know, we all talk about, you know, which Pakistan will show up. And I think we're, England is the same in T20s in today's day. Because... I mean, they have all the players that, or I mean, they, uh, England is definitely batting heavy, um, and they their original motto is to go for everything. The days that it goes well, you know, you see the highest scores, but that's not happening consistently. I think the concern for England are injuries and the top order, right? So Jason Roy has not been uh, playing in form, so he was dropped. Bears gone. Um, and the Pakistan series, not all of their first choice 11 players will be there either. Um, 
So that's why we see a lot of the Ben Duckets, the Harry Brooks, the 3-4-5 playing, and Moinoli has played a couple of great knocks as well. Um, so the middle order has been contributing a lot. Um, but I don't think England, well, especially well, when Butler comes back and Stokes comes back, you know, maybe things are different. But I don't think on their bad days, England will not be able to win. On the other hand, Pakistan, even if they have a bad day in their batting, their bowling can rescue, as we saw in the last couple of matches. Harris Roth taking three wickets in the last couple of overs. Um, the run out. Um, and then, I think what is it was Jamal uh, defending 15. Uh, so I, I think Pakistan looks promising. Uh, it's just that their middle order has not had much of a game time. You know, when Baba Azam and Rizwan back for a long time, they're most likely going to win. Right. So th- that's the other discussion point, right? Yeah. Rizwan has been papering over a lot of cracks in their top order. Right. His form is probably he's probably in the form of his life, and you know, right. he's he's batting so well, including the last game where you know his 63 was comfortably the highest score mm-hmm. with Moin Ali only able to make a 50 on the other side and David Malan sort of hanging in there but really unable to score very quickly right mm-hmm. so Rizwan has papered over a lot of cracks including Babar Azam's lack of form their top order not being able to fire very consistently or very quickly right mm-hmm. they have Iftikar the likes of Asif Ali who sort of somehow rescue a bit of uh, towards the end some important 20s, 30s and somehow Shadab Khan has had a good series as well sometimes with the bat and sometimes with the ball he's done the bit but for me there is no consistency yet I mean Rizwan can't always do all the scoring as far as I'm concerned Babar Azam is more like a Kohli-like player who's you know he's built his game around safety first approach if you look at any of the top uh, Fab Four as, as they're called uh, each of them has the same sort of because they're first and foremost test match players and it's a safety first approach where they simply cannot hit in spite of seeing a length that they know is, you know, the length that they would comfortably be able to hit to mid-wicket boundary, they are comfortable driving it through mid-on, something like this, right? So, this is a different discussion, but then, in this 11, Pakistan, Rizwan and Babar Azam sort of are the same in terms of how they start off. Yeah. Rizwan is able to kick on if he plays more than 30-35 balls. Babar Azam sometimes even struggles to do that. Yeah. So, you have Fakhar Zaman who's injured, who's missing. They have tried Shan Masood at 3 and 4. They are trying Haider Ali who's very young yet. But what sort of a combination do you see Pakistan for breaking out of this sort of loop that they are stuck in? Um, I think at this point they should stick to what they have uh, because the fives. So, okay, they have the right players. They're not playing them in the correct order, and and because and it's been pointed out a lot in the the PSL, Shadab Khan bats at number four and he's he does really well. But on the national team, he rarely gets to play uh, in the top. And and you saw in the Asia Cup game that Nawaz was promoted to four which was a surprise to people who was who were watching the India-Pakistan game, um, who do not follow PSL, right? But I think a lot of people from Pakistan, they know that Shadab can bat, Nawaz can bat, right? So that gives them the extra cushion. But I think that, I think they need to persist with Kushdu and Asif Ali. Um, so, you know, so what? If 
Mystical will definitely stay because he gives you the spin option as he showed the other day. Um, and he gives you the ones. I think Shadab should batter. So top two are Baba, Rizwan, three Shah Masood. I would say four Shadab. Uh, Iftikar should be the insurance policy in case wickets you have like 40 for 4, 30 for 3 or something, send Iftikar in. Otherwise, keep him till the end. And if other if the top order like Babar Azam has a good day, right, they back till the 12, 13 over, then just send in uh, Kujdil and Asif back to back. Maybe give them a little couple more overs, send them in the 15th, 14th over instead of the 18th, 19th over. Um, and in case there's a matchup like uh, with leg spinners, then you can send Mohamed Nawaz at 4 and keep Shadab at 8. Um, otherwise, I would say give Shadab a shot at 4. Alright. See, you are expecting a lot of flexibility from 3 downward. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Question is, will the management in Pakistan be able to see this and sort of put it in place, convince their players and, you know, uh -huh. in theory, they say there's one theory that says, you know, T20 cricket should have five batsmen in the top five who can bat anywhere. One day you're an opener, next day you're at number five. It shouldn't matter to you because that's how T20 is. Right. Because you would expect one, two, three to face the most number of balls and make it make the most of it. Okay. If you look at it that way, if Fakhar Zaman cannot get going, Pakistan, do you still think they should have a Babar Azam opening? For me, Babar Azam should be a floating number three or four. It, to give you an example, look what New Zealand are trying to do with Kane Williamson, uh -huh. right? Similar sort of a player, if 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 anything, not even as flamboyant as Babar, right. right? So in that case, how are you trying to use him is the question. So he's like a floating three or four. Sometimes if required, he can open uh -huh. simply because they are going to have at least one hitter and one sort of a steady hand who can still hit, like in Conway and Guptill, right, right at top. So then you have the uh, cushion of a number three who can be a floater or who can be sort of steady influence. Uh -huh. Otherwise, on a bad day, you could be 30 for three in the eighth over, like it was in the fifth T20, yeah. right? And then even 30 for four at times. And then you'll have Iftikar coming in and really having to do a complete rescue. Yeah. They were really lucky to have Rizwan in the fifth or T20. Otherwise, they could have actually collapsed 110 all out, the way I look at it. Right. If Babur bats it, if Babur is the floater, who opens with Rizwan? Fakhar should open. I see. Okay. He, he's a more free-flowing batter who's actually even made a double hundred. And yeah. on his day, he's completely devastating. If you remember how Pakistan had beaten India in that, um, the, the final of, uh, what tournament was it in, in England? Yeah. Champions Trophy, right? So that's what worked for them. Yeah. A completely fearless approach right at the top where it was mostly Fakhar Zaman who took them apart. It was a, I think he was dismissed off a no ball, the bowling of Pumra and so on. We remember that. But he still kept going, right? That's what you need right at the top, where a completely fearless, fearless, fearless approach from one of the top order batsmen, knowing the other guy is very steady, uh, will keep the ship going in Rizwan. I, yeah, I think that would be... I I would agree with that, right? Uh, I think Pakistan management is not going to make that decision because of the either was the first or second T20. I think... So, like after the Asia Cup, there were lots of calls on that, and one of Baba or Rizwan should go up at three. But once they chased that 200 plus, they had the 200 plus partnership. Uh, I, ideally, what I think should happen should be a combination of both, which will uh, not happen in real life. 
But in, in when you're batting second, I think Baba and Rizwan is a great partnership because they can see the required rate and then develop their chase accordingly, right? They can uh, hit, so some of the times they hit early on, uh, but that's only while chasing. First innings, I would say go with your strategy, right? Push a, a fucker in line if he's available or Shah Masood up at the top or, or even Hyder Ali. Hyder Ali is a great talent, but I don't think number four, he's, he has had the numbers so far. No, I think that might be a step too, too far for him yet. He's not developed so much technically to, if required, go in at one drop in the first over or the second over. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, so I would say first innings, you know, get that aggressive top order batter and uh, drop one of Baba or Rizwan to number three or four in case things happen. But while batting second, I would still send Baba and Rizwan as opening partnership, which would be a bit inconsistent. So I, I don't think they're going to adopt this approach, but I think it'd be nice to see if they did that. Fair enough. Fair enough. So let's see if uh, how they'll work out. But from bowling perspective, uh, they are they are in a pretty good position simply because Rauf won them a game himself. Right. Right. The new guy Jamal has adapted really well. Right. Uh, to what uh, international cricket can be, we'll have to see how he goes in the upcoming uh, games. Right. And Jamal can bat. You know, he's a very very good batsman who has very decent record when it comes to the shortest format. Right. And he was only sent in a bit late. He was debuting. It, it's understandable, but he may have a role yet. If he's going to pick, fit in the bigger picture for me, between Mohammad Wasim, Haris Rauf, and it could be Nasim Shah, it could be Hasnain. Right. Because once Shahin Shafridi comes, he'll take one of the positions, right? So they have a very, very strong bowling lineup when it comes to fast bowling. How about their spin options? Shadab and Nawaz, are you happy with the way they're currently doing the job? They're, they're absolutely brilliant. And I think uh, uh, in Shadab for sure, because leg spin is uh, leg spin Googly is key in T20, but mm. Nawaz has been bowling. I haven't seen much of Nawaz bowling in this series, but in, in the Asia Cup, when the he he's sort of like Aksar Patel, like uh, uh, you know, if you miss the spin and it, it's a straighter one, that the straighter one gets a lot of wickets with the LBW in play. Um, and and what I like about both of them is they offer a lot more than just their bowling skills. Um, Shadal is a gun fielder, uh, and you know both of them bat pretty well as um, too. So. Uh, I like their options and their, and in terms of the flexibility we were talking about earlier, if there's any, you know, player who has to bat out of order, it's going to be Nawaz or Shadab. They're not going to necessarily mess up, um, they're not going to uh, tinker with the other people in the lineup, but depend, depending on the situation and matchups, because if they get out early, it doesn't really hurt the team. But if on their day, as as Nawaz did, you know, 20 ball 40, it's on their, um, it, it's going to help you. And, and just going back to the bowling really quick, I think Harris Ralph is going to be a key, key figure for Pakistan. It could be an underdog um, because he, he started his career before Pakistan in the Big Bash. And I think in his interview said, Melbourne is my home ground, right? So... If someone says that, wow. that with confidence, you know, it's, it's pretty good. Interesting. Uh, you know, as far as the World Cup is concerned, Pakistan could be a real dark horse as well. Right. I mean, they may go much deeper than most of even of their fans might give them credit. I don't know if they'll go all the way, but it, 
I really see them making the semi-finals simply because of how much experience some of their players have playing in Australia. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to be very that's going to be very crucial for them. For me, one more thing to mention is uh, well, Nasim Shah. We heard that he's been admitted to the hospital because he's contracted pneumonia complicated by COVID. He's out of the England series. So we wish him uh, you know a safe recovery and a quick recovery considering the World Cup is just around the corner. Uh-huh. And uh, you know really this guy was quite a revelation uh, we saw him hit the top of uh, off stumps and then hit even a couple of sixes when the team needed okay. this guy is going to be special if he can you know okay. come around and get his uh, head working and keep it keep it in the game i'm really looking forward to nasim shah doing big things for pakistan yeah. uh, in the coming years great great talent and yeah, I, i do hope that he recovers um yeah i mean nasim and shaheen shah would be great to watch in together absolutely going on to a little bit of a must be considered slightly old news but um, goswami's farewell game when india did something really really unique they won a 3-0 clean sweep against england but that was not achieved in the most friendly of circumstances there was a lot of she said she said afterwards as well what are your thoughts on mankading was it right radha doing that or uh, not radha deepthi i think yeah deepthi doing that where she broke the stumps with the player out of her crease. Uh, it's, it's been a very interesting couple of weeks uh, or a week um, on this conversation. Uh, so I'm of the view, um, I usually like, uh, you know, I think the game should be played in a right spirit, but I think now with the Monk, I think even the ICC is trying is to make that a legal way to get out. And, uh, and, and I, I I'm of the, uh, of the opinion that it was a legitimate, legitimate dismissal and there shouldn't be much talk about it. it. It's not like it happened for the first time. Yes, it put a sour taste because the chase was so close, right? Uh, Charlie Dean was playing really well, um, but I, uh, I, I thought there was no problem in that, especially because it has happened a lot more in the last few years and the batters should be more careful. The problem that I have with the rule though, right, I, I think... Uh, it's been equated with stumping and runouts. But when you, like I think October 1st, it goes to the fact that it's now officially a runout and Munkert is no longer a statement. Uh, but uh, whenever a runout happens, right, a ball is delivered and it's like, suppose it's 19.3 and a runout happens in 19.4, right? But that is a legitimate delivery that's delivered and You know, you can score runs off of it. But when a monker happens, it happens before or after a delivery, right? It's not officially a ball. So how can it be the same as a run-out? Which, you know, going into more legality, when is a ball not a dead ball? And when is the ball alive, right? Now that's what I'm... Yeah, but, but I think for a few suggestions that I've heard, which I think will be nice is... Like, I think in the future, it should be, like, running someone out as non-strikers and should be allowed for the sole reason of, you know, there's been, why is there a line in the first place and no balls for the bowlers have been watched, right? That's a, bowlers cannot step outside the crease, then why should batters have a chance? So I think some law should be made based on that, like, when the cameraman or the umpire is watching... Uh, the front foot no balls maybe at the same time they should also scan and see if the bats inside the crease if it's not then the runs that happened on that ball should not be counted or 
you know, some some sort of free hit for the bowling team or something like that. Interesting suggestion. So, look, if I were to look at it from a bigger picture perspective, right? I recently heard this thought somewhere, and I thought it applies so correctly here to mention uh-huh. that batting has so far been, or in the historically, batting has been a um, reactive sort of an art. Gotcha. So you something happens and the batsman reacts to it. A ball is bowled and the batsman reacts to it. These days you see that sort of some preemptive na- nature has already crept in. So being able to leave your crease before the ball is delivered is one of them. The batsman sort of already making up his mind to switch it. Right. right? Doing something else. So maybe the loss of the game also have to you know, get a little bit of a jolt that way. Because look, uh, there is a reason why batsmen are so mollycoddled. Right. Because... No matter how big a game, no matter how important a stage, on a bad day, it can take 50 deliveries for a team to be all out. This is possible completely. Right. right? So, in in trying to balance the bat and the ball um, or the contest between the bat and the ball, there is a lot of, lot of rules that have been uh, shackling the bowling. Mm-hmm. But now you see the batsmen have been taking advantage of every one of those rules, including leaving the crease way early, right? So, when it comes to this exact example, so come the 1st of October, it's going to be classified as a run-out. Mm-hmm. It's going to move from unfair play sort of section to a legitimate run-out sort of a section. But then right. there is always this, uh, what you mentioned, a delicate thing, what you said. Is it a legitimate delivery or not? So, right. Then you get into those sort of legalities. Did the bowler start his action or not? And you can really expect only slower bowlers to come into this. You cannot expect a faster bowler to actually right. sort of run in and sort of pull into his action and then pull out and then run somebody out. I don't see that happening. Right. right. But still, we may see some of, some more innovations from the bowlers as well, where they also start noticing how often a batsman does it. So, mm-hmm. giving a warning also is not required from 1st of October onwards. It's just a run-out, like any yeah. other run-out. So, so, that's going to be interesting how the batsmen again fight back. It's, it's For the lack of a better term, it's just the quintessential, let's say, the contest between one side and the other. There is no good and bad here. That's how I, w- I would like to say the batsmen will find a way to fight back again. The bowlers will have to get extra vigilant. But this is going to be interesting. So, at the end of the day, given that sometimes you talk of bowlers as an endangered species, uh, it's good to see that something is being done to try and help the bowlers so that the batsmen cannot get all the advantages, whether right. perceived, whether fair, whether, you know, all of these things. So, that's going to be interesting to see in the coming days. So, I'm really looking forward to this rule really being followed because in my cricketing league, uh-huh. I actually noticed a couple of these happening uh, where a bowler uh-huh. gave a warning once and the next time the stumps were broken and the umpire had no other choice but to give the batsman out. I have one final thought on this. And uh, going off with your last point, especially with our Ashwin, you know, we're doing more and more of these in uh, the IPL. I think the solution to reducing the number of non-strikers runouts is more attempts for non-strikers runouts. Because what happened when Ashwin did uh, a couple of attempts of Monkbed is now whenever he bowls, you will see more batters deliberately being inside the crease, right? <laughs> And so right. now, I suppose this happens a couple more times, you know, it, it will spawn another conversation for a couple of days. But then the fact that it happened a couple more times, that means batters will be, as you said, as, as a reaction to that, will deliberately stay in their crease more. So actually more 
non-striker attempt, more attempts on non-strikers and uh, will actually be better for the game because that will make batters better at not leaving the crease. And one thing Elise Perry said in her podcast at Cricketer was um, maybe uh, so when they're doing replays and uh, a bowler has attempted a non-strikers run out and the batter actually happens to be in the crease, then it should be given a no ball. Right? Like you attempt a monkard, but they were in the crease in the first place, then uh, the batter should be rewarded. So you can take the risk to do a run out, but if they're in the crease, then you know you, you, you lose as well. Well, I mean, that does come across as a little harsh, but I see where this is coming from. Yeah, you, don't yeah. want, you don't want the game to come to a standstill. Right. There is no penalty for a batsman to withdraw from facing the bowler just when the bowler is running in. You don't penalize the batter then, do you? That's true. That's true. Then why would you penalize the bowler just because he's being more wary that the batsman will decrease? Yeah. That seems like a step too far for me. But let's see how these things develop, right? So if you say you pulled out legitimately, I understand. You're doing it as a part of gamesmanship. The bowler, bowling team should get minus one. I mean, whenever they come to bat. So right. that's not happening yet. So I'm waiting to see how these things evolve. But there is more to be said and more to be written on this space is what I understand on this topic. Definitely. All right. So that brings us to our last couple of points. We saw that, you know, there were these Loda reforms, PCCI had a shift mm-hmm. to put around it for the lack of a better term, where some of the governing body's powers were sort of divested into more people and all right. of these things happened in 2016. You know that. Come 2022. So it's like the body has been sort of eroding away those uh, changes small small thing at a time up to a point where now there is um, well they've almost been completely done away with what are your thoughts on what has been unfolding here Uh, and uh, just to fill me in if I'm not completely uh, into this but this also applies to the election of the head of the BCCI and uh, yeah so it's definitely not a good sign like I know those reforms were I guess more suggestions rather than a hard and fast rules but the fact that they're going away from it might mean like maybe we won't see the result right away but you can definitely see Gangui's influence uh, growing and you know Jay Shah like uh, like they've done good things for the for cricket as well but there's definitely a power struggle that might happen uh, soon uh, which might not uh, I think in the next four or five years, you know, the, the reforms were put into place to solve a few issues in the administration and how certain, you know, there won't be much of conflict of interest in, uh, under certain parties. I think four or five years down the line, everything that the reforms wanted to solve will kind of be out of the place. Like it could happen again because of the sidestepping of power and stuff like that look it's a very nuanced discussion but yeah <laughs> in this case what i can tell you is first of all they were not suggestions they were actually hard and tough reforms that the body had to take okay. so people were actually made to stand down from their positions in many state boards and so on right yeah right a certain uh, person was put in charge and there was a governing council so that they could hold fair and free elections so that more and more people could come and take part in the governance. But now, so the, for me, two or three things really matter. One is the 
removing of a disqualification criteria or a cooling off period is sort of taken out so that same person can come from a state board to a central board as well as there is no disqualification because if the person is an office bearer in an IPL governing council or any other board or committee that is already ICC or BCCI based, he can he or she can still have at best nine years was the limit. Now, maybe it can still be more, right? So right. all of these, then of course, one of the other main things is empowering of the secretary. The, the power that the secretary held was sort of curbed a little mm-hmm. so that, uh, uh, right. you know, it at least the governance becomes more uh, distributed, but now it's become centralized again. So in theory, right. let's say the inertia that the body carried has has sort of borne through rather than those temporary reforms is what they became rather than permanent guidelines right on how the body should function so for me this is a little bit of a worrisome point simply because when you need to change how a body functions especially something as powerful as bcci right they are a non-taxpaying entity registered as a non-profit in chennai so for this entity to sort of not have enough overseers I'm not doubting the integrity of the people. I'm just saying it's the amount of power that is divested in a few people simply because those people that are currently in uh, in power might be very, very, you know, very, very deservingly so. Not every time it's been the case previously and not every time it might be in the future, right? For the lack of a better example, if you look at the executive branch of the American government, Mm-hmm. Even one less than scrupulous individual sitting right at the top cannot do so many changes or cannot bring so many changes that the entire bureaucracy and that machinery sort of de- gets destabilized. Yep. The Check. machinery has so much checks and balances that that one individual will still have some, you know, some curbs over him, right? Yep. So this is what it was all about rather than, you know, not the right people having the right kind of power. So I'm right. now worried. I'm now worried. Tomorrow, a less than scrupulous individual may take advantages of these sort of restrictions not being in place. So that's that's more like my worry. But you know, at least there is a AGM coming up on 18th, and there is a high likelihood the same set of people will retain the power even afterwards. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for you? I don't think it's a, if the restrictions were put on and the that they could only you know run for a couple of terms or one term or whatever. Them changing, you know, one rule at a time, uh, and extending their power for a couple more of terms is not a good sign. And as you said, for now it's okay, but in the future someone else might say, "Oh, this is," you know, someone took power, uh, some someone extended their term, got elected again. Well, what's stopping me from, you know, being head of this organization for? A decade, two decades, right? Uh, it's happened before. It's, it's happened before, right? Uh, and the man, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's a good thing, but we won't really know the effects of it um, until the current administration is out of power. Uh, yeah, until we see who the next administration is, and if they also continue to take the same steps or they go back to uh, how the reforms were meant to be yeah i mean uh, look it's 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 uh, 
it's a tautology that uh, you know absolute power corrupts absolutely and so on and anybody who's in power will not want to voluntarily relinquish it yeah. so we'll see we'll see what the future has to say as far as bcci governance is concerned yeah. uh, the last point i wanted to discuss with you is pcb's uh, you know worry that pcb has publicly come out and said that with more and more airports indian business people taking control of leagues t20 leagues around the world the same attitude that has sort of been adapted in ipl when it comes to pakistan players is now being reflected in other leagues right and therefore at the end of the day the people suffering are the pakistani cricketers right do you see this as a good thing or a bad thing but first of all do you see that the same thing will actually be replicated across all the leagues so to just to give you some context mm-hmm. there's only one pakistan based player in all of uae t20 leagues and i think there's one or two players only in the caribbean premier league as well both women and men mm-hmm. so sort of the same approach is sort of seen there so the worry that they are actually expressing is not completely unfounded yeah what are your thoughts on this uh, and i think even to add on that the south africa t20 league i don't think there was anyone any pakistan based players in the auction uh, right yeah uh, and that is a very justifiable concern right uh, i agree with the the concerns of the pakistan board there um in the future it i mean it looks like that the same franchises the franchise that owns teams in the IPL will have a lot of stake in the other leagues as well. It's basically going to be, you know, March to May, IPL in India, CPL is going to be just IPL in the Caribbean in a few months. And I, I mean, I was, I mean, pleased for, I know this is a government issue, but uh, Pakistan players should already have been allowed to play in the IPL. And just from a, uh, you know, an economic point of view, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, the leagues are a product that the BCCI or the boards uh, kind of commercialize to the public. And what's that like? Why would we want to see Bumrah and Shaheen Shah Afridi going together? Why would we want to see Rohit Sharma, Fakhar Zaman hitting 200s, Babar Azam in the league, right? So I think eventually it will happen or it should happen. And I thought the IPL in the UAE was the perfect place. Because in IPL 2021, between in the 2010s when Pakistan could not host home matches, UAE was in, to a certain extent still is was Pakistan's home, right? That was the perfect opportunity to get Pakistan players in the IPL, uh, and I think they should definitely play. They should not be restricted from participating in the other leagues, right? They definitely play a lot of big bash. Uh, I think Imad Wasim and the might be the CPL player who was saying he's, he's been doing really well there. So they definitely add, right. like if Pakistan players do well, that adds to the league, right? That makes the league more competitive, which will mean the games are closer, more people will watch, will 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 end up benefiting the owners of the franchise more. Uh, so I don't. Yeah. So I think those are very those concerns are very realistic. um especially with uh, how the leagues are expanding uh but i, I think we will we'll wait and watch what happens in the next 3 years because what's happening with the overkill of t20 leagues is um some of those leagues might not survive right survival of the fittest 
because the calendar is crowded, some of those leagues might die naturally because they're not as profitable as other leagues. And the remaining four or five leagues that ends up lasting, they will need to make sure they're treating all the players well or giving equal opportunity. Yeah, I mean, this is the real concern that uh, if one attitude that is sort of followed by one specific board mm. is taken across to other boards simply because it's the same set of people who are investing in the these franchise sort of cricket leagues, that can be an issue. And that's very realistic. You're right. Let's see how it goes that uh, maybe there is some sort of rapprochement or some sort of a, you know, a compromise that should happen. Because, you know, England has offered to, or ECB has offered to actually host an India versus Park series, right? At the same time, so has Iceland. Yeah, that was funny. Well, I mean, I think they're not being funny. I think they're being serious. So, in in any case, I mean, the point I'm trying to make is that there may be some interesting other alternatives if the body is sort of um, interested in making things happen. But I think it's probably taking some directives from the government as, as... Independent as cricket and sport should be, it's impossible to completely leave it out of a little bit of political influence, no matter how big a body or a body might be, right? Yeah, uh, I just don't see. So, so like the Asia Cup, right? Uh, it was the the format was specifically designed so they can so the broadcaster can get up to three India Pakistan games, right? That was the entire goal of, yes. of the of the format of the cup, right? If you're putting so much effort into changing the format so you can hit a three game series why not just do a three match in the pakistan series in the uae and then have a good format like i think bangladesh did not play india or pakistan at all in the asia like that's that's not an asia cup um yeah i i, I mean i i don't see the difference how you, you're allowed to play in multinational national tournaments in neutral venues why cannot why can we not play bilaterals in the same neutral venue? Absolutely. Now it remains to be seen how uh, this problem can be solved. Whether the governing body of the sport in the world, ICC, can actually give some directives or some sort of suggestions, and will BCCI, who at least on paper seems to be the body that seems to be blocking these attempts, yeah. are they able to reconcile? Are they able to even listen to those things that are being told to them by the ICC? It's going to be interesting because at the end of the day, it's all business-driven. And if it's business-driven and if it becomes that way, then who's to stop Pakistan and a few other boards who, you know, 10 years down the line are so disgruntled by the dominance of BCCI starting a parallel league, mm-hmm. a parallel body, and then floating a parallel set of leagues, right? Mm-hmm. So, this this is the worst thing because chess had this issue, boxing has this had this issue where you know parallel leagues exist, parallel belts, parallel World Cups exist, and so on. So you really don't want to go there. So uh, it, it's it's also very interesting to see how this might happen in the upcoming uh, or how this will unfold in the upcoming couple of years. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for uh, you know participating in this podcast. It's been very interesting chatting with you. We would love to have you as a guest once again. I hope. Yeah, and, uh, thank you, Ajit. Thank you for the opportunity. As I said, this is my first podcast, so I really enjoyed this, and I listened to the conversation with Annie uh, Chait the other day. Um, so, uh, love the stuff that you guys are doing, and yeah, uh, enjoyed it once again. And thank you. So before we let you go. Would you like to plug any of your work, any upcoming work? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so, 
these days, uh, and, and we touched upon a lot of these topics, we've been talking a lot about um, the, what the options players have in the, in the current day and age of cricket financially. Uh, a lot of, so, so the Broken Cricket Dream says, we, uh, I basically have two or three separate uh, kind of topics. Uh, one is for, you know, just, just inspiring people by telling stories of cricketers, right? What can we learn from Neil Stain? What can we learn from Elise Perry? What can we learn from Rahul Rabbit? But then the other problem about Broken Cricket Dreams is broken cricket, right? What kind of solutions can we offer? Uh, what in an ideal world, how would, uh, if we were in administration, what things would we do? So when, when I started this blog, I wrote a lot of things on how we can fix the World Test Championship. How can we make, uh, uh, you, know, you know, test cricket a little better, more competitive. But all of that assumed that, you know, the big three play more evenly uh, with the other countries, which is not going to happen. And why is it not going to happen is because of the finances in the game. So these days I'm exploring how the finances affect, which are the richest leagues in the world, how do players earn money. And uh, one article I want to say is, um, I wrote something about the seven different types of careers cricketers can have, right? So like a Pujara can play class and county cricket, and how much will he earn just with that? How much can someone like a Sam Billings earn who does not have an England contract, so he does not earn the seven eight hundred thousand as a contract, but he earns per game, and he and that's why he has to supplement his career with two or three leagues, not necessarily six or seven leagues, but he does have to play two or three leagues. So that's kind of the scenarios that I'm running these days, and um, in the future, some things will come up like how much money does it take to host a test match? How much money does it take to get a roof? So in a stadium, so it doesn't rain. You know, why isn't there DRS and BBL until this year? How much money does DRS count? So stuff like that. Absolutely fascinating. It goes without saying, I recommend all your work on the brokencricketdreams.com to our listeners. Uh, we wish all our listeners a good day where, wherever they may be listening from. And if you have any thoughts or comments about the work we are doing, mm-hmm. please do write in to us. Uh, we are always, uh, you know, looking forward to any feedback. Thanks a lot once again, Nitish. Uh, I wish you a good day. Thank you, Jeet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is the Armchair Cricket Podcast.